This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Thank you for joining me. The Harvard Program on Education Policy and Governance, which I direct, just released an assessment of student performance at charter schools in 35 states in the District of Columbia. We rank states according to the level of charter student performance in math and reading in fourth and eighth grade on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's often referred to as the nation's report card. Our ranking is based on student performances between 2009 and 2019, and we've been adjusted for student background so that we make comparisons among the states based on similar groups of students in each state. To the surprise of many, the state of Alaska ranked first on this test. The charter schools in Alaska are outperforming the schools in every other state that we rank, all 36 administrative units. Colorado and Massachusetts came in second and third, and New York, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Oklahoma also ranked high, but Alaska came in first by a considerable degree, both overall, both for boys and girls, both for those from low-income households and those in cities and those in places other than cities. It just came in first all over the place. So I am pleased that Dr. Dana Bishop, Commissioner of Education for the State of Alaska, has agreed to discuss these findings with me on the Education Exchange. Before becoming the State Commissioner, Dr. Bishop served for six years as the superintendent for the Anchorage School District, the largest school district in Alaska. So thank you, Dr. Bishop, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Dr. Bishop, Alaska's charter schools came in first, but they have never received much attention by the national media or the research community or even by charter school advocates. So everybody's wondering, what is the explanation for the high performance of Alaska's charter schools? Can you tell us? Yeah, if it was so simple, right? We wouldn't have research and universities to do all that good thing, those good things. But uh, I liked uh, in your research where you shared that it is this is the first time we actually looked at outputs, right? A lot of those other uh, organizations that look at charter schools, they really just focus on inputs. Like if we and I and I think truly our nation is obsessed with inputs of if we do this and we do this and we do this and and then what's going to come out on the other end and um truly and my ability to be able to go into charters and and you know I'm going to speak from personal experience as a superintendent of the two largest school districts that had um between the two of them almost 20 charter schools of the 30 that are in our state um I would say it is the unwavering focus on the mission uh, with the supportive environment of, of parents and teachers. And when you go into our charter schools in Alaska, they are, um, if I might say, um, uh, very focused on their mission and really a no frills. And they they really put the money I would say that they do receive, and it is equitable um, with the other school districts or the other schools in their district. Uh, we have a state authorizing model that determines that. Um, but when you when you go in and you have a choice of where you place your revenue, um, you will see by far it is always at that classroom level 
um, with teachers, with classrooms, uh, focusing on high quality. Well, that is really helpful and informative. Uh, well, who authorizes the charter schools in Alaska? How does Alaska decide who is to get a charter and who is going to be given this opportunity to start a new school? So the um, the state is the ultimate authorizer, but it does run through the LEA first. So the application that must go to the state is defined in statute. And um, what happens in many districts is uh, in their local policy, they just adopt those steps in that application locally. And um, in the two districts uh, where I was actually superintendent, uh, which was the Matsu Borough School District as well as the Anchorage School District, we actually had support. So if uh, a group of teachers or family members, uh, community members came forward to do a charter, we actually, like, it was very transparent, the application process, and it's quite rigorous. And But we also had resources to help people fill those out. Uh, it's a lot of data, a lot of information that you need to present, and we were w willing and able to, to help folks put them in. But uh, that procedure starts at the local level. Now, if it isn't approved at the local level, there is an appeal process uh, for which I could recommend to the state board that it should be approved, uh, but the the final approval and the uh, accountability measures are all held with the state school board. Well, that is what we have found nationwide is a sign of a good arrangement that if the state takes the responsibility for authorizing charter schools, we find student performance higher, generally speaking, across the country. So that uh, that Alaska is pursuing that kind of a policy uh, may be a little part of the story. So can you tell me, uh, what do you look for in, a, in an application for a charter school? Are there, do you look for a specific kind of mission? Do they, charter schools all have a similar mission or do they vary in their missions? Um, actually, they're quite varied. <clears throat> we have uh, Alaska Native cultural charter schools. We have indigenous language charter schools, as well as other immersion programs, uh, you know, from Spanish to German. Um, that I know of that I visited. Uh, we have a Yupik language, two Yupik language charter schools, one in rural Alaska, one here in Anchorage. Um, and so the missions are, are very varied, but what is looked for is um, an understanding and a tie to that mission, uh, a tie uh, to people who would govern in the academic policy committee, um, the commitment from the people who are designing it, but also processes for all of those things that we know a good school has. So from the finances, understanding the finances, understanding uh, really statutory law in Alaska about FAPE, um, federal FAPE, um, just how are we going to serve our students? And then how are your parents connected to the mission as well uh, is very strong in our charter schools. In fact, uh, some charter schools have, I, I would say almost all of them, have some type of parent commitment uh, that is involved. Uh, some charter schools have transportation. That's what they've written into their charters. Some choose not to have um, global busing transportation. Some use a, a public busing system. Uh, some have lunch programs. Some don't. So they don't have to have everything they don't need to be everything for everybody but their mission and specific specific to the children that are served is very explicit in our um, applications well one of the 
of pieces of research that I did when I was trying to figure out why Alaska was doing so well was to look at its history. And I noticed that correspondence courses uh, are, are part of the Alaska heritage going even back into the 1930s. You know, Alaska is this massively large state. It's uh, I, I visited Alaska some years ago with my family and, you know, we went to Fairbanks as well as to Anchorage and we even took an airplane up across across uh, the Arctic Circle uh, just to see what it was like that far north. And of course, what you can't come away with is not only a spectacular landscape and not only the sturdiness of its people, but also just how big this state is. You can put mm -hmm. a lot of Texases. How many Texases can we get <laughs> Two, and into? Half. Two and a half. <laughs> Two and a half. Two and a half Texases. We know that. Yeah. yeah so that uh, that's so, so maybe... Is there an experience with administering unusual educational settings that are driven by Alaska's unique um, size and, and landscape? Um, I, I would say so in an acceptance of that uniqueness. I've traveled to different states and been in conferences where it was almost a, a bad word to talk about charters or they were um, somehow, you know, the demise of public education. And, and Alaska hasn't looked at it that way. They uh, look at it as it's actually a support for public education. It offers parents choice and, and particularly staff members choice as well. Um, staff who work at these schools choose to go there. They believe in the mission as well. And we all know that, um, you know, as an employees, that sense of a belonging as well uh, in our work and workforce is, is paramount as well. But certainly, um, if you know the Iditarod and, you know, the Sarum Run, things like that, Alaska is not connected by roads. Um, for those that don't know, Juneau, which is, we always, well, you can't really see my hand. This is Alaska. You know, Juneau is, is uh, um, you know, down over here. I'm right here and you were up around here, but um, that's how we show our Alaska. But um, even our state capital isn't connected. Uh, you have to fly into our state capital. There's no, there's roads in there, but there isn't a road to our capital um, from really the the center, the, the biggest populous center is uh, here in Anchorage. Yeah, so, no, and I, I climbed up your exit glacier, which was truly one of the great experiences of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do it again, but I did it once and uh, it was a, a thrill. But it did sort of, it did sort of uh, tell me something about, you know, you have to be, you have to be resilient to live in this, in this landscape. So, so is it, do we, are the students, is there something about the students themselves that we should talk about that can explain this performance, not, not just the system? Um. Well, I, 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 that's a great question. I've, I, I, I come from a place where I think students should be the hardest workers in the education system. It's their education they're working for. Um, but I would say, uh, really, within our, we're just our, we are communities, but we're, we're individuals. We, we really look at that. Uh, um, a, a lot of times now, it's the the will of the individual over uh, the community good, if you will. Um, we see that theme played out over and over again. But in Alaska, you don't survive by yourself. Um, it is just by by nature, literally by nature, that um, communities survive together, and they have for hundreds of thousands of years. Our, our you know uh, first people of Alaska, um, you know, have survived years and years and years, and and just the history of. Um, there's 229 recognized tribes 
in the state of Alaska. And if you think about that across the nation, uh, we have the majority of uh, uh, the, the Alaska Native or American Indian tribes. And, and so there's there's been a lifelong of survival, if you will. But I would say taking care of each other is paramount. Um, but looking that, um, if you did look, you you spent maybe a little bit of time on uh, Juneau, you went all the way up to Fairbanks. Um, the life time of, of people and what they do is very different in a, a fishing community than it is on a tundra. So, um, you know, we, we recognize differences and appreciate them, I would say, in Alaska. Um, but uh, that's a great question. I would like to believe that our children are, are uh, strong and understand, uh, hopefully, that uh, an education is paramount to their future. Well, so um, how about the relations between charters and districts? You've been a district school superintendent. I, I don't talk to many school district superintendents mm -hmm. who will be as uh, complimentary of charter schools as, as, as you have been. So is there an unusually uh, considerate and um, uh, helpful uh, relationship between charter schools and district schools in, in Alaska, would you say? Yeah, I, I would say so. And and the reason being is that um, really we're all our schools right now are connected uh, through districts. And so uh, people are colleagues, teachers are colleagues with each other, principals are colleagues with each other. When there's training at the district level, charter school principals uh, are included. And, and for me, in the two districts that I was, uh, you know, had leadership, it was paramount. The kids are the same. The families are the same. They're all of ours. And the majority of the charter schools are elementary. And so as these kids matriculate, they're going to go to other bigger schools that may be neighborhood schools, neighborhood high schools, comprehensive high schools. And so it behooves us to work together. Um, when I was a principal myself, I wasn't a principal of a charter, but um, I had a great relationship with uh, one of the first charter schools in Matsu Academy Charter. Um, my school and she, we would just compete over um, really in a great fun way about, um, you know, the school that I had always you know, outperformed her kids a little bit in math and she outperformed the kids that I had in reading. And we had a, a great camaraderie in understanding from each other, uh, how are you getting there? And, and in fact, uh, use very similar curricula. So I was a school that asked, can I go off of the district approved curriculum? This one, this charter school is doing this and they're getting the results. And what we demonstrated with that was that, boy, when we did that too, um, we were getting the results in a neighborhood school. And so that laboratory aspect of, of what matters and what we can learn from each other was demonstrated and is demonstrated in the state of Alaska. Well, that is very interesting because you're suggesting that even when it comes down to curriculum, there's a sharing of ideas between the district school and the charter schools. Don't, I don't find that very many places around the country. I may find some so uh, organizational uh, learning, uh, how, you know, maybe we, we, we want to have a K through eight school rather than a K through six school because the charter schools are K through eight or something like that. But I don't find this this learning from the uh, what you, what's the what's there in the maths uh, lesson that, that we that we should pick up. Uh, so uh, <laughs> do you find quite a bit of that or was your experience unusual? Oh no, I, I would say just um, in in the leadership that I I see that around our state because you'll we'll go to a principals association meeting and charter schools will be there charter school principals as well as uh, you know neighborhood school principals but we've really picked up kind of that um, 
Simon Sinek, I don't know if you've ever heard, I really look at it as like worthy opponents rather than there's no enemies. There's no, they're opposite of us. We need to out, you know, beat them. It's, it's that worthy opponent or worthy rival, I think is the word he uses that your rival is going to show you something that you're not so good in. And so just learn from it and uh, an open exchange of ideas. Um, you know, sometimes you'll hear, well, their kids are different or they're this or different or, you know, our parents can't do that because they couldn't bring their kids. And and sometimes we judge um, that a parent that maybe doesn't have as high socioeconomic status as another parent couldn't be a good parent. Like there's some judgments made in public education generally outside of charters that doesn't sit well with me in, in belief that, um, you know, uh, outcomes are given just because of socioeconomic. And we know there's a relationship, but um, I think demonstrated and the work that you did is that across different levels, whether it's special education, ELL or socioeconomic, there, there is a difference when high quality uh, education uh, come, is, is in play. Well, so how about COVID? What impact has that had on the schools in Alaska in general? And uh, has it led to increasing absenteeism and uh, emotional distress and uh, bullying at school? And is this is this emerging both in charters and district schools in Alaska? We hear so much of it elsewhere in the United States. So, mm -hmm. what what's your experience uh, post COVID? Well, I always because um, I was uh, a leader uh, at the time and followed along with our. Um, you know, city government, we didn't know much about COVID of closing schools, and I never imagined how difficult it would be to reopen them. Um, I think it was a travesty that we educators, I'm going to just go on record, did to our young people. Yeah, so, yeah, shutting schools was not something I was in right. favor. <laughs> I just, I was opposed to that the first summer. And yeah, I, I was personally, if you listen to my podcast, you'll, yeah. you'll discover that. But so I'm, it's good to hear you say that. I still get emotional because. Yeah, well, I, I was responsible. So, But um, just so you know, prior to post COVID, um, our charter school um, increased by 16 percent. And we have uh, correspondence charter schools, too. So we have regular correspondence schools and then correspondence charter schools. And um, really, I, I just looked at our policy forum, Alaska's policy forum data that they shared, and it was actually an increase of 16% of students joined charter schools after, um, during this COVID time. I think they were able to operate a little bit more nimbly. Um, one of the biggest um, pushback uh, features uh, in my district was, and it wasn't our teachers, it was the business with teachers, it was uh, unions that were really connected to the national narrative that really pushed that because things that were happening in New York were not happening in Alaska, but we just couldn't seem to move the needle. And I, I finally had one board member who saw her grandson and then she voted to get them back. And after trying for months, um, was able to get the kids back. And again, there was not a complaint from an educator. They were happy to be back with their kids. Kids were happy to be back in school. That really the politics played out in, in that feature. And, and as an educator, that leader that, you know, that, that bothers me to this day. But well, um, one of, yeah, one of the things that's been happening around the country is there's been a lot more talk about the science of reading. And I, I'm not altogether sure exactly what people mean by the science of reading, but uh, 
but there's been a lot of feeling that we need to reassess how we're teaching reading, especially at the elementary school level. Sure. And so I can speak are, a lot about that. <laughs> so what are you what are you doing in this in this? Yeah. This, yeah. Well, interestingly enough, just so you know, the charter schools a lot in Alaska were science of reading schools. Um, that academy charter, I can look at our list and I can just share that they actually taught the science of reading um, and have that as a paramount in their program. All of our immersion schools are like that, that are charters. Uh, so the science of reading is really utilizing and focusing on phonemic awareness, phonics, um, vocabulary comprehension. Um, and then there's a one more in there um, that I that I missed, but basically it's the K three time that uh, you're going to be, you know, phonics and phonemic awareness are, are utilized, not just in kind of nuanced, but actually looking at word parts. And and um, I don't know if you know uh, the work of Lucy Calkins, where it was a blended model and people see whole words, uh, yes, was really yes. debunked by the science. Yeah, yeah. So um, in any language, you you learn to read the same, you know, language you pick up from hearing, but you learn to break down sounds and put them together to make words in any language, which will, and, and then you relate that, you know, in your schema of, of vocabulary. So um, that's the science of reading, just actually good instruction, good high quality instruction. Then when kids uh, struggle with, you know, breaking the sounds down or struggle with the, the, the uh, you know, syllabication of words that you actually support those pieces. We don't just say, look on the page and get cues. Like look at the pictures and see what you got. Cause you know, that doesn't work in biology. It doesn't work with multisyllabic words. Um, but that's what we were teaching our kids for years. So they didn't reach high levels of, of being able to um, break the code of the English language. So um, high quality instruction in reading and science of reading is learning to break the code of our language uh, so that you own it forever and ever, no matter um, what position you're in, um, no matter whether your book has pictures or not. <laughs> so, um, and they studied that by studying the brain and sight. Once they could take pictures of that, they saw that uh, even, you know, younger, very good readers still their eyes followed um, the parts of a of a word, not the whole word. So, um, but good research. But interestingly enough, um, I was going to share some of that. That really, the mission of these charters was very basic to um, learning to read and numeracy and being very strong in the early grades. A lot of most of our charters are elementary, and they're really, um, for lack of a better word, I hope this doesn't sound like back to the basics, like. This is what kids need to learn. They need to have a good base, and we're we're going to teach them. Well, so one thing that uh, has been affecting schools around the country is just the decline in enrollment. You know, it's it's there's a there are fewer young people than there used to be. Right, the demography mm -hmm. is changing in our society, and and we don't have as many people coming into our educational system as are matriculating out of it. And then you add onto that absenteeism and sort of the people thinking more about homeschooling, perhaps, or looking for options out there. How, how is that impacting Alaska? Is Alaska an exception to this pattern or not? Certainly not an exception. That's a, a great question. We struggle with attendance and, and attracting kids, but I would say it was... Um, exasperated with the pandemic because we were saying, you know, if you have a sniffle, stay home. And that's hard to get out of that habit. Um, you know, even with snow days here, we just, uh, when I was a superintendent, we, you know, didn't ubiquitously have, you know, learning from home, send computers home. And 
you, you every day that you had in school was treasured. Like you, you know, we rarely, maybe in the, I was uh, assistant superintendent, superintendent for over 15 years in two districts. Maybe I can't even count in those 15 years, the number of snow days I called on two hands. And last year, a neighboring district had 13 and they called them, you know, uh, you know, uh, electronic days. They're going to, you know, work from home and, or e-learning days. And without the system set up, like we had during the pandemic, that leaves kids behind. I, I think um, we're going to have to start looking at, at that across the nation about how important school is and the routine of school and getting up and going. Um, but at the same time, um, making schools compelling, having excitement, uh, you know, challenging kids to the end of their seats, um, engaging kids, uh, having the the kinds of schools that kids don't want to miss. But I would say as a society, we've gotten really um, lackadaisical around the meaning of school. And I can't blame the parents, as I said, as an educator, you know, when we sent them home and said, you know, don't send your kids to us, you keep them. Um, you know, we're questioning parents for keeping their home, their kids home now, when for, you know, in some places, two years, um, we, we, we wouldn't let them in. So um, I think we're we're in a crisis about the importance of education for people, young people. And I, and I don't believe it all needs to be done the same way, but I think a focus that education is paramount to our success as a nation, um, to the individual family's success, uh, for kids to be able to work, to have jobs, um, all those things that um, be good citizens, you know, contribute, not just consume. All those good things we want to teach young people—it's—it's it's paramount that we um, have the type of routine and expectations that schools have offered us, in in, in working together and working with other people um, in this nation. That um, we we need to find a way to get back uh, to that point. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bishop. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. Um, it's wonderful. You guys do good work and. Uh, Sorry if I messed up anything and sorry about getting um, emotional. Oh, well, uh, I am just uh, so excited to have had this opportunity to speak with you, uh, Dr. Bishop. I've been speaking with Dr. Bishop, Commissioner of Education for the State of Alaska. This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday when another Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education X website at noon Eastern time.